This morning, we're going to continue in our series on 1 Samuel. We're in chapter 20. If you want to turn there with me, that's where we're going to be this morning. Before we begin, before we open God's word, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of Samuel, for the prophets, Lord God, who recorded all that um, happened in the days of David. We pray, Lord, that as we look at your, your word, your law, your gospel in the, in the book of Samuel, that we would be renewed in our faith, that we would be renewed in our inner being, that we would be strengthened by the Spirit to not only understand you better, but to understand ourselves better, to walk in the light, to walk by the Spirit, to be encouraged, to go forth from here, Lord God, as the people of God, to live as the people of God. We thank you and we praise you and amen. amen. Now, I'm going to just jump right in because chapter 20 is long. But chapter 19, uh, what happened was Saul attempted to assassinate David three times. He attempted to kill him in person with a spear. He then attempted to kidnap him from his home and kill him. And then he sent troops to kill him in the field. So three times Saul attempted to murder David. Now what we're going to see is David's going to come back out of the wilderness, and he's going to go to Jonathan, and he's going to appeal to Jonathan to help him. He needs help. This this situation with Saul can't carry on. And, and as, as we look at this appeal to Jonathan, we learn a great deal about covenants. What is a covenant? David and Jonathan have a covenant. And in this episode here, this whole story, what we're going to see is the benefit of what, of what covenants do. What is a covenant? How does it work? How does it function? What's the purpose of them? We're going to see right, very clearly in this story the purpose of covenant, the peace of covenant, the joy and goodness of a covenant. So we will open with uh, 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 1 through 3. This is what we hear. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And Jonathan said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Now, Jonathan was given a vow from his father back in 1 Samuel 19.6. This is what Saul said to him. As the Lord lives, David shall not be put to death. Now, I don't want to say that Jonathan is a naive man. But he's the kind of man that when you give your word, that you vow something like this in the name of the Lord, that you keep it. That, that's what throws him here. How could his own father vow such a thing in the name of God and not do it? Jonathan denies that David is in danger. He doesn't want to believe that his own father could swear such a thing in the, in the Lord's name and then go back on it. Now, I don't think he's naive, as a lot of people have suggested in the commentaries that I've read. I I think that Jonathan's resistance to David's words don't mean he's naive, as some have suggested, but that he is thinking well of his father as we are commanded to do. We are told to think well of others. When someone comes and presents a case to us, it would be folly and foolishness, as the world often does, to just simply accept the testimony as we hear it. Never just listen to one side's testimony and just go all in and agree and think, oh, well, this person's right, look, this is a terrible thing, this person that they're fighting with, I hate them. Jonathan is withholding judgment. 
It says in Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Jonathan is thinking well of Saul. And I don't think that's a weakness in Jonathan. I think it's a strength. And as we're going to see all kinds of things here with Jonathan that a lot of people malign him for, that a lot of people point to as weaknesses, I actually think it's strength. And the reason we don't recognize it is because it's Christ-like strength. It's Christ-like strength. And that's why when we read stories like this, we don't realize that Jonathan is a lesser Christ just like David is. And so we, we accuse him of things that we ought not. David... For his part, he wants to know, or he wants either to know what he has done or for Jonathan to realize that his father has murderous intentions. David wants both himself and Jonathan to wrestle with them, their circumstances for a deeper understanding. He's coming to him and say, listen, I, I understand how you feel, but either I've done something or you need to realize that your father is attempting to murder me. One of us is sleeping and one of us needs to wake up. Self-delusion is a great evil, and it's very common. And I love the fact that David, in this case, is not coming and justifying himself. He's, he's giving um, Jonathan the opportunity to find fault in him. He doesn't just come and say, I am absolutely perfect. What's wrong with your dad? Can you do something? He comes to Jonathan and says, judge me. Judge me. Now, when persecuted, he's checking his own actions. He's checking his own heart. Now, is this common amongst us? Right? As soon as perse- persecution comes, we think, oh, that Jay Inslee. There's no fault in any of us, right? It's just all him. Right? We hear stories about how churches get shut down. We hear s- stories about how people are maligned. We hear stories about how, how people are falsely accused. We ourselves fall into these circumstances, and it's very uncommon for us to say, well, you know, there might actually be something to this. And I remember years ago when I was first uh, getting into church leadership. He's not here, so I'll tell the story. Steve Brown. I remember somebody accused me of something I hadn't done. And I go into Steve's office because I worked with him at the time, and he's like, okay, hold on. There's one lesson you have to learn right now, and that is this person's probably more right than you realize. There is something in what this person is saying that you don't see that's true, and, and you should deal with that. And then we'll go and we'll deal with the person who's falsely, falsely accusing you. We'll find out what's going on. And so in leadership, as a parent, as a husband, for us in our employment and in the church, when when something happens to you, when something comes your way that is difficult to hear, that, that you, right, your natural reaction is to just push back and say no. But we ought to take those opportunities to really search ourselves, to, to go before our beloved friends and let them judge us. Right? If something comes your way like this, some trouble, it's a good idea to go to your friend and tell them the situation and say, listen, can you tell me, if I, am I wrong here? Did I do something wrong? When you go to address people who are having at you in the way that Saul is having, <laughs> having at David, it's helpful to be able to say, yeah, you know what, there is, let me just repent first. There is something that I've, I have some fault in myself that I should admit. Okay. Let's deal with that. Now, let's deal with what you have said or done, right? This is what, in, later on in, in the New Testament, Paul is always talking about check your, own, check your heart. Those who are spiritual go and restore your brother who's trapped in sin, right? Get the log out of your own eye, I think Jesus said. And that's what David is doing here. Jonathan and David have made a covenant with one another. Back in 1 Samuel 18, they did, this is what it said. They said they had the same soul. They covenanted together in the Lord. They have a relationship where they're not just buddies. They're not just Facebook friends. They are covenanted. 
cheek by jowl, by soul. They are one with one another. And I'm, this is perfectly heterosexual. I'm just going to say that right now. I'm not even going to take certain arguments seriously by mentioning them in everyone's presence. These are two men who love God, and that love that they have for God, they have made a covenant to one another. And this is a picture for us, not only of of what marriage covenants are like, what membership covenants are like, what business covenants should be like, what our covenant with the government should be. Because covenants should dictate all these different relationships that I just described. Okay, we, we don't understand covenant. We don't understand the kind of relationship David and Jonathan have, that their love for the Lord would you so unite them together. That's difficult for us to understand. Because generally, the people we go to church with right, are just people we sit in, next to pews. Right? We sit next to pews with them. They could be here next week. They could not be here next week. Or they could be here in 30 <laughs> this church. They could be here 30 years from now. But how often are the people you're in at ch- you go to church with, you feel covenanted together with them? They're the kind of people you could go to and be like, listen, here's the situation I'm having. Tell me my fault. I-, I think that David and Jonathan's relationship is something that we all ought to study very thoroughly, not only so that we could be better friends to, to one another, but that we would just be better at understanding our covenantal relationships and all the different covenantal relationships that we have. And And... and David explains, he shows us exactly what a covenant relationship requires. And and Jonathan's response to David shows us what a covenant relationship requires. If you go down to 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 8, this is what it says. This is what David says to Jonathan. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? Now, part of the covenant is death for unfaithfulness. This is one of the threads we're going to look at the rest of this morning. David wants his friend to deal with any death penalty himself. David and Jonathan are of one soul. They hate sin, and they would rather justly slay one another than let each other live in sin. Think about that. David says, if there is fault in me, and if I deserve the death penalty, Jonathan, what are you waiting for? Don't even take me to your father. Do it right here, right now. Judge me right here, right now. Now, why? why? Why would he put his life in this man's hands this way? Because he trusts him, because they, they love one another, because they, they both recognize that they love the Lord so much so that they can, they can have this kind of relationship. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And that's what David is calling on Jonathan to do here. Be a faithful friend. And, and if, if you have to wound me because God's law requires it, do it. Don't wait. Don't haul me in. Do it now. Jonathan and David are holding each other to a higher standard. That's what being covenanted together requires, right? A husband and wife hold each other to a different standard, a higher standard, than a mere man and woman who are friends, who know each other in a casual setting. Don't they? And that's what we see. A covenant requires a higher standard of conduct. Now, Jonathan um, is a a judge in Israel. He is the advisor to the king. And David is coming to him in in, in not only a personal sense, but also in a public sense. He's coming to him as, as a judge in Israel saying, listen, we have this problem with the king that we have to deal with. But the primary vehicle for his appeal to, to Jonathan is, is a covenant. But what is a covenant? What is it? Is it just an, right, an old-fashioned way of saying that they have a relationship, they have a pact, they have taken oaths? 
right? There's a lot of different things that we, we old-fashioned words like that. Has anyone in here ever taken an oath? It's not something we do very often. Uh, I, I've had to take an oath when I worked at the King County uh, when I was working for a judge um, because w- when I, I would sign certain things and put a stamp on it, it would become a legal document, binding somebody like a law would. And I had to make certain vows to uphold that position in, in, in a way. And there were right, penalties in the oath that would happen to me if I, dis- if I broke this vow that I had. I, I think this idea of covenant, we hear, hear the word you hear, right? Christ's covenant church is the name of the church and and of course, it sounds cool, three C's, right? That's cool when you have three big, bold C's. looks nice. But what is it? What is a covenant? This word we, we hear a lot in church. Covenants give us boundaries. They give us unity. They give us standards of loyalty. Covenants are not just relationships. They're not just vows. And in our rootless culture of chaos, this great Darwinian social melee that we find ourselves in, the counter-idol of easy, safe selfishness, all of this, the, the culture we're in, can lead to anxiety and uncertainty in our relationships. Do you have uncertainty in your relationships? Your, your family members, your spouses, your business partners. Is there uncertainty? Well, I think you guys should actually find out what a covenant is and try making one. <laughs> because it brings all kinds of stability, all kinds of unity, all kinds of teeth to the relationship. Marriage covenants, membership covenants, like we have here at the church, covenants of friendship and fidelity, these are all God-ordained means to bring stability and accountability and unity into our lives. A covenant is a commitment of love. It creates a relationship fundamentally different from the mutual profit-seeking relationship of a contract. In the Bible, a covenant can only be established and sealed by an oath, which usually involves an oath-taking ceremony. You don't just promise something. You have a ceremony, and where there are certain... Um, processes you go through to secure the covenant vows. A uh, wedding ceremony is the most obvious one that we've mostly, mo- probably most of us have seen. The oath is, an, uh, is so important in a covenant, actually, that oath and covenant are synonymous with one another in several places in the Bible. When one takes an oath, he promises to preserve the covenantal relationship and seals the promise with words that call a curse upon himself if he should fail to keep his promise. And that curse is covenant death. Death is what comes to someone if they break the covenant. Now, many Christians may not realize this, but a curse is part of the traditional Christian wedding vows. I love weddings. I'm doing one next week. I'm very excited about it. But, you know, with the dress and the food and the tuxes and the people and the joy, some, what I often find is people don't really realize what they're saying. Um, so you, I try to go over that very carefully ahead of time because in a marriage covenant, you are saying, till death do us part. Right? And, and that kind of plays a, little, it plays a little different in the sunshine in Issaquah next week. When, when you say that out loud, be, be like, wait, what did he just say? Well, what you're saying when you say that is that only death will separate you. That's the only thing that will separate us, death. Nothing but death will end a covenant. Now, another aspect of traditional wedding vows illustrates the kind of commitment that are demanded. For example, we say in sickness and in health, or better or worse, which promises that even if the relationship turns out to be unprofitable for us, we will not abandon our partner because of economic or other hardships. And, and this is a very old-fashioned way of thinking about it. But, but the, you used to have a lot of security, right? If you knew we're going to the poor, if you're going to the poorhouse, we're going to the poorhouse together. <laughs> if you're going to be, at a sick, be in a sickbed, I will be by the sickbed with you. This used to be the thing that we used to promise one another, right? And... and, and this is why so often now, um, 
when I do the Book of Common Prayer version of a wedding, wedding ceremony, uh, when I've done non-believer wedding vows, they don't like all that bit. They, they, they send me always some text that's, I'm like, I'm not saying that. I'm not using that. Uh, if you want me to do this, I can't do that because you're not promising anything to anyone. You're just talking about how much you like each other. And let me tell you, that will change, right? <laughs> oh, so many funny stories. I remember the first time I asked my wife to iron my blue jeans. Um, at that, that, that stretched our, our marriage vows, let me tell you. She never did, actually. She never will. I had to get over that. I had to die to myself. But modern views of marriage are ridiculous. And, and people want rootlessness. People want, oh, wait, I have to maybe die? I, I have to put up with this person even when I don't like them? I have to put, wait, what if they, lose, what if they can't walk anymore? Right? What, what, if they, what if they have an accident? Am I going to, I'm going to be strapped to this person the rest of your life? And we all know, anybody who's been in this church any length of time, we know what real, right? The, the former pastor and his wife uh, fell off a horse, and, and he's been pushing her in a wheelchair for 16 years now. And if you want to know what marriage vows look like, boom. And when, when he used to talk about himself not being a very good husband, it's the hardest thing I ever <laughs> It's like, come on, Dean, come on. Right? We, we have forgotten this concept of what a marriage vow is. And it's, it leads to a great deal of trouble. The other thing we don't understand is that, um, and, and why divorce is so difficult, is it's death. You know, God says, I've put two things, I've taken two individual things, and I've made them one thing. This is a, a new being now. And you're tearing something asunder when there is a divorce. You're tearing, there is something whole now that you're, you're, you're tearing apart. You're killing what I've made. And, and that kind of thing, when people start coming into my office and they start, you know, throwing around the D word, I'm like, well, let, let's, talk about how, let's talk about the death that you're talking about. I don't call it divorce. I call it death once we get to a certain point because it tends to actually help people veer away from the trouble they're, they're, they're in. It helps them realize a little deeper sense of what they're talking about. Marital love is self-sacrificial. There is no basis for dissolving the relationship except when those uh, of those who took the vow betray them and undermine the whole relationship. Divorce is death because the two have become one and we have to tear them apart now. And and that's a very difficult thing. And and it's allowed in the law of Moses. It's something that does actually happen. I've actually been party uh, to a case where I was like, yes, these people should be. But But it's always a death. It's always a death. Sickness, poverty, emotions, unpleasant personalities, none of these things should undermine the vows that you take. This, I want us all to understand the seriousness of it. And I think marriage is one of the easiest ways to do it. Right? How secure would you be if you thought your spouse was going to leave you if you had a really bad hair day? Right? It would be awful. It would be difficult to, to live together. Now, in, each, in, in marriage, each person takes an oath to give him or herself, himself or herself sacrificially to the other without thought of personal profit. The, the wedding illustration is especially appropriate for God's relationship with Israel is referred to as a marriage. The big one is Ezekiel 16. If you've never read it, I would. The whole portion, is, it's very clear. Israel is Yahweh's bride. This is not an, an, a new idea in the New Testament. 
So long as Israel was faithful to the, to the love of the covenant, and faithful here does not mean sinless perfection, but rather repentant faith and love, God would never leave her. This is his promise to Israel. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He says to Israel, tell death do us part. That's what God says in the Old Testament. His commitment to bless her cannot be shaken. Now, generally, God and his people, citizens and their rulers, husbands and wives, or church members, covenant together. Always throughout church history, this is what we have done. Uniting people in something deeper than mere friendship and contractual obligations. Jonathan and David demonstrate this deeper relationship in the context of friendship, and it's a very important lesson for all of us to learn if we're going to be good friends with one another. Now, it's highlighted here in, in chapter 20, verse 8, where David says, Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant um, of the Lord with you. He says, deal kindly with me. Now, I want to stop here. We have to stop here. Because otherwise, if we don't look into this word kindly, we're not going to even understand what's being said. In verse 8, David wants Jonathan to deal kindly with him. The Hebrew word translated as kindly is yesed. Yesed is a word that we all ought to know. The word is used only in cases where there is a covenantal tie between the two parties. It does not refer to kindness in general. He's not just saying, please be nice to me. The word yesed stands for the attitude which both covenanted parties ought to maintain towards one another. The etymological core of the word is an eagerness or a keenness for one another. And while the word has uh, developed considerably since then, you never lose the sense of earnestness and keenness for one another. The word describes Yahweh's attitude towards his wayward people. That's almost always how the word is used. It's very strange that David would say to Jonathan, show me this you said. Because you said is how God has often described his love, his relationship, his feelings towards Israel. The word describes Yahweh's attitude attitude towards his wayward people. I'm going to say wayward because Israel is always wayward. She's, she's never not wayward. Right? She's constantly running off. The steady, persistent refusal of God to wash his hands of her is the essential meaning of the word and how it is most often used. It, it, throughout scripture, I can't even, I couldn't possibly start to read the verses. We would not have time. We'd be here still tomorrow. But God's steadfast love his kind love. It, it's always, um, there's always kindness involved in the translation. There's, there's often the word love translated in it. This whole, you said, this I will not leave you nor forsake you no matter what till death do us part is the attitude God has towards Israel. The continual waywardness described throughout the scriptures makes it inevitable that if God is going to retain Israel in any way, he must show them loving kindness. He must show them mercy. He must show them goodness all entirely undeserved. This is grace. This is grace. For this reason, the predominant use of the word comes to include mercy and forgiveness as the main principle and God's faithfulness to his own covenant with man. This, this is a word that ought not to be translated with one word. There's so much packed into this word. When God made a covenant with Abraham, which we have inherited through Christ, he did so by taking all the obligation of the covenant upon himself. And I, and I think this is something else that we don't understand about the covenant that God made with Abram that has been transferred to us. If you go back in Genesis chapter 15, this is, this is you said, right? This, this is covenant love. This is covenant grace. This is, this is a kind of unity and a kind of selflessness that's really hard to understand. But this is what it says in Genesis 15, 12 to 13. 
As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, and he tells him what he, the covenant that he's making with him. He describes all that he's going to do for Abram and his offspring, he, all that he's going to do for his people. And it goes down, you go down a little further in the same chapter, Genesis 15, you read this in 17 to 18. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land. Now, I want you to think about what this means. Abram was sleeping. He's sleeping. Now, generally, when you cut a covenant, that's what it means to make a covenant. You cut a covenant. You take animals, you chop them in half, you lay them on either side, and the two parties walk down the center as if to say, thus shall happen to us if we break this covenant. And God is like Abram. We're going to make a covenant that's going to include the entire world, eschatological covenant, but here, lay down and take a nap because there's no way you're going to fulfill it. And in this theophany, he goes down the middle of the cut animals himself, taking upon himself all the obligation. This is why you have God coming down as a man, being put to death by God, because he upholds both ends of the covenant. Abram is sleeping, and God says, till death do us part, and he walks down the middle of the chopped up animals. Paul comments on this. It's called the self-maledictory oath. Don't worry, there's not a quiz. You don't have to remember that phrase. This is called the self-maledictory oath. He's, ma- he's taking everything upon himself. And this is what Paul has to say to it in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 18. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their dis- disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. No man can make the covenant that God made with Abraham. God had to make it with himself, and his promise was himself, and he himself fulfilled it. So that who could benefit from it? You. Me. Everyone who is a a part of Israel. God took upon himself all the covenantal obligations between himself and Abram, necessitating Calvary to fulfill the covenant he had made with wayward Israel. Now, this is what is fascinating about this. I had to go deep into this because David goes to Jonathan and says, show this kind of love to me. Be Christ to me. Be Godlike to me. Have the kind of love for me that God has for us. Now, how could a man say that to a man? And, and, unless something is unifying them and something is strengthening them <laughs> and there is some standard to their relationship higher than a mere Facebook-like. A, a business contract. Right? When, when I think of all, all that I owe my wife... And, and all the joy and all the goodness I, I attain through it, I don't think of the piece of paper that's filed away in some King County office somewhere. Right? There, there is something else, something else, something higher, something holier, something greater. Yesed is a type of loyalty that does not merely meet an obligation, but goes the second mile. Behavior worthy of the term must be generous. It has to be generous. If it's not generous, it's not Yesed. 
Rahab, the prostitute, reminded Israel, the Israelite spies, that she had treated them with said, by hiding them and defying the tyrant of Jericho. In Joshua chapter 2, she risked her own life in Christ-like love. She was willing to lay her life down to support them and to help them. And this was, he said, this was God-like love. This was Christ-like love that she showed them. This aspect of loving kindness helps explain its popularity in descriptions of God. He's almost always in the Old Testament described this way, such as Psalm 107, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. His yesed endures forever. And as we're going to see as this unfolds, that's not, that's not hyperbole. It's not hyperbole. His steadfast love, his loyalty to us, his grace to us, his selflessness to us, he says, till death do us part, and he is not joking around. Why are we? You said, loving kindness best describes the quality of God in the Old Testament that attracts the obedience and praise and love of individuals that makes relationships like the one David and, and, and Jonathan have possible. It makes Rahab possible. There's, how does a prostitute who is not a warrior... Who has right? She risks everything. Where does that come from in this woman to help Israel in the way that she does? Unless there's something that transcends her, <laughs> that she's united to, that she's serving a higher calling, a higher purpose. Her love for Israel comes from where? Well, it's Christ-like love. It's God-like love. It's Yahweh-like love. And that's where it comes from. And this is what David is asking of Jonathan. Can you ask it of one another? Can you ask it of your spouse? Can you ask it of your business partners? Can you ask it of the people sitting in the pews behind, in front, to the left, to the right, and across the aisle? This is one of those times where I find, for myself, chief among us, we do not understand. We do not understand the story that we have been written into. The characters that we're dealing with. The characters we're supposed to be. Now, I've taken a long time here. Believe it or not, I'm not going to take nearly as much time for the wild conspiracy that now takes place <laughs> between these two, right? I had to, you had to establish it because they're not going to do the things they're about to do unless there is something else between them besides just liking each other. Jonathan tells David, says, come on, t- tell me your plan. I'll do whatever you want. That, he is showing him, you said. You tell me what you want to do and, and we'll do it. And in verses 5 through 7, David, David says to him, listen, and I'm going to just paraphrase for us. Your dad's having a party. It's the new moon. Everybody's going to be there. You tell him that I'm going down to see my dad and my brothers. And we're going to have a barbecue. We're going to sacrifice to the Lord. We're going to eat some, some short ribs. It's going to be great. You tell him I'm busy, and you just see what he does. You watch how he reacts. And either you come get me and put me to death because something is wrong with me, or you'll know, and then we'll talk. This is essentially what he's saying. This is the plan that he has hatched. And and what's going on here is that you can see there is a deep conspiracy. In verses 5 through 7, he he describes, David describes to Jonathan how he wants him to do this. And the thing at feasts is that kings were always made at feasts. We recall twice now in Samuel, Saul was made king at a feast. David was made king at a feast. Saul might not like David going down to his own tribe because, it, right, he may have heard by now what happened when David was down there and Samuel went down to visit him and anoint him as king. So he might be suspicious by what he's done. 
But, he, but what he's going to see is that he has no trust in David, no faith in David. He sees in David nothing but an enemy. He sees in, in, in him nothing but conspiracy, right? Nothing in, his, in Saul's own destruction, even though David is always going out whooping all of Saul's enemies in the name of God. And, and if, if this isn't going to show who Saul is and what his real intent is, nothing will. So you understand why there's sort of this provocation that Saul has, but you're going to see his wild reaction to David's absence. Now, what's going on here, it gets interesting. In verse 10, uh, we will read this because they... they um, Yeah, David wants to know. David says, well, how am I going to find out what happened? He says, then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go into the field. Now, the reason they want to go into the field is because they're in the palace currently. And they're talking about conspiring against the king who likes to throw spears at people. Not a good idea. If you're going to conspire against a king, whether he throws spears at you or not, don't do it in his palace. I'm just going to give you a suggestion. Go out in the field like Jonathan and David. So then you have this whole second episode um, that is, is separate. They go out in the field and carry on this whole conspiracy now, and they add to the conspiracy. It says, And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should I please my father to... But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you, and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you, as he had been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. Show me that you said back. Show it to me. That if I may, that I, that I may not die, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, and Jonathan cut a covenant with the house of David, saying, "May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies." And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, "Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty." On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself before when the master was in hand and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy saying, go, find the arrows. If I say to the boy, look, the arrows are on the side of you, take, take them, then you, are to, um, then, then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, it is safe for you. That's the signal that it's all safe to come back. If I shoot the arrows off to the side and I say, hey, kid, go over there and get them. Come on back. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. If I live. Out in the field, the open hillsides outside of the city, Jonathan swears to keep David informed. I will not hide anything from you. I will tell you everything, whatever risk I have to take. In verses 15 through 17, the theme is cutting. In verse 15, he says, Do not cut off your steadfast love, you just said, from my household. In verse 16, he says, The Lord will cut off David's enemies. Verse 17, the word translated as made is the same word as translated as cut. He cut a covenant. Because David and Jonathan have cut a covenant, 
When God cuts off David's enemies, David must show Yesed and not cut off Jonathan's household along with the rest of Saul's household. Jonathan realizes who the enemies of David are, and he knows who's with him. Right? We've been talking about this for weeks. Look, Jonathan knows Yahweh is with David, and it, when Yahweh rises up, right, if you go after the temple of the Lord, if you go after the place where the Lord dwells, he takes it personally. And Jonathan realizes what's coming to his entire household. And what he's saying is like, listen, I'm, I'm not going to survive this. But remember my children. Remember my household. Remember the Lord that stands between us. Remember the love that we have for one another. Remember that no matter whose flag I'm riding under as I go out and come in, I am yours and you are mine and we are the Lord's together. And so they're, they're, they're making these deep promises to one another and to one another's households. It's not just personal. When you have a, a, a man who you are friends with, you are promising to not just take the, that kind of care of him, but of his wife, his children, his entire household. What's his, right? You're, you're honoring and respecting it and protecting it, and you're willing to die for what is his. You're willing to uphold this deeper love, this yesed, that comes from the Lord and only from the Lord. Jonathan here is giving up his own position. He's not saying, hey, listen, I'm the crown prince. Where do you get off talking this way? What are you doing? You're talking about my dad. He's the anointed of the Lord. Take a hike. Right? He doesn't pull out his sword and stab him with it because he's already given it to David. He has no spear to throw because he's given it to David. He has given away his position. He is not grasping. He's not clinging after the throne that he, he understands the Lord has given away. He accepts the difficult circumstances. How hard would it be to, on, on the outside, in, is, according to everybody in the, in the room, right? all the other princes, all the other elders of Israel, according to the whole system, you are the crown prince. And you're out in a field and you're, listen, it's yours, buddy. Take it and have it. And if I survive this, which I probably won't, remember my household. He's, he, he has no... He, he's not has no account for himself for his worldly goods for his worldly position he's given it all away because he loves david and this is the example of what every disciple of the lord jesus ought to be like it doesn't matter if you're out in a field it doesn't matter if you're in the workplace it doesn't matter if you're at home it doesn't matter if you're on the bus going to work are you his are you completely his have you given away every every consideration of your earthly good to the lord jesus christ The scene here closes with high emotion. In verse 19, he tells David to hide in the field by the stone heap where he hid before. He tells him this whole all-clear sign now. This is, this is a good conspiracy. I like this. If, you, if, if there's ever trouble with me, I think we're gonna, this is what we're going to do. Okay, don't tell anyone. Did we just videotape that? Oh, sorry. Okay, I'll go hide in the field, and you guys shoot arrows at me. Just practice. Maybe we should send Jared. Jared can shoot arrows. I love this conspiracy. We're going to talk a lot about David's conspiracies later on. We'll mention this one again, but it, it, this is quite elaborate. They're going to have a servant there who doesn't know what's going on, and he's just going to be running around there. And this whole time, David and Jonathan are going to be exchanging information. The French resistance would be proud of them. Jonathan concludes this, whole, this particular portion with 1 Samuel 20, verse 23. And as far as the matter, as far as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. 
This last line, the Lord is between you and me forever, is reminiscent of the oath between Laban and Jacob in Genesis 31, meaning that the Lord himself, no less, will avenge any breach of this covenant to which he has been witness. He's saying again, till death do us part, put, and, and let the Lord be witness. Now, Jonathan, like Christ, will now go and take on the leadership of Israel. He's going back to his own doomed household to find out exactly what's going on. It's time for him to accept whatever difficult truth is coming. Either he's going to have to put his friend to death, or his father is a liar. His father is vowing things before God that he's not keeping. Whatever is going to happen to Jonathan now, it's not going to be good. And does he, does he hide? Does he, does he say, well, you know, that Thanksgiving dinner sounds like it's going to be real rough with all those family members there. Bad stuff's happening, so I'm going to just go to Taco Bell. He does not avoid the difficult situation. He goes to face it. This is Yaset. This is what it looks like. Now, I'm not going to read verses 24 through 26. It has a little bit to do with uh, seating arrangements. And we, we find out that David is not there. And Saul's first reaction is, oh, he must not be clean. That's, that's nice. You definitely think well of people. He's, he must be unclean, so he's not here. The real action doesn't start until verse 27. And in verse 27, we read, But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty, and Saul said to Jonathan his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. Seems harmless. Seems safe. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. And Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Is that your wife? Sorry. (laughs) Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Now the conversation unfolds in a very distinct pattern. Saul asks a question in verse 27. Jonathan gives his revelation in verses 28 to 29. Saul then gets angry, verses 30 to 31. Then we reverse it. Jonathan asks the question in verse 32. Saul gives his revelation in verse 33. And then Jonathan's angry in verse 34. Does this sound like family dinners at your house? I hope not. If so, come see me. Saul asked of the whereabouts of that son of Jesse. He's no longer calling him my son. It's his son-in-law. And he had been calling him my son. Now he's referring back to him by, the, by his father's household. Where is he? Jonathan gives a... He went to see his family. Easy, straightforward explanation. And Saul loses his mind. Enraged, he referred to David with an evident contempt as the son of Jesse, no longer referring to him as his own son. Saul's comments to his own son, insulting his own wife, are quite violent. In fact, I was reading one translation where the the guy said, listen, we can't can't just straight up translate this into English because it's not appropriate. (laughs) And I was like, well, that's because, you know, in Hebrew, it's not what they say. It's, it's what would be the equivalent in modern English for us to understand it. 
In this particular case, what he says here, the guy was like, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I have a wife and kids. Nakedness is an Old Testament idiom for taboo sexual relationships. It's a phrase that in the Old Testament, when you, you refer to the, you uncovered your mother's nakedness, you uncovered your father's nakedness, there's some sort of weird sexual relationship that's going on that ought not to have. So in, in the case, you know, the law says don't uncover, if you're, if you're a son, don't uncover the nakedness of your mother. It means don't sleep with her. Saul is saying that Jonathan, well, first he refers to Jonathan's mother, his own wife, as a whore, right? That's what a wayward woman is. But Saul is saying that Jonathan is bringing the kind of shame upon himself and upon his household that he would bring by sleeping with his own mother. So does this seem like a man who's in control of himself? Does this seem like a man who's able to reason? A man who's able to think well of others? He's not only insulting David, who doesn't deserve it. He's insulting Jonathan, who doesn't deserve it. And, and I mean, like, can you imagine the family dinner? There's the wife down the row. Just like, oh, don't mind me. I guess I'll re, you know, leave the room. And this is why it says Jonathan is ashamed. He is ashamed. But it's not for the reasons that Saul says. He's ashamed of who his father is and what he's become and what he's doing. And what you see here is that the persecution that Saul had given David, he now gives to his disciple Jonathan, right? Just like Christ said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. He throws his spear at David. David has, gone, has fled, and now you have Jonathan in David's place, and he's throwing spears at his own son. He's, he's persecuting his, his son Jonathan just like he persecuted David. And what we find in the world is we are persecuted just like Christ is, aren't we? We follow the master, and the, and the student is not better than the master. And what they did to him, they will do to us. But they did to him first because they hated him. And, and that's what you see. You see this picture of Christ here. The same treatment that Saul gives David, he gives Jonathan. Jonathan places Yahweh's servant David, Yahweh's word, because he knows that the Lord has rejected Saul. He places Yahweh's kingdom first, above himself, above his own. This is Christ-like love indeed. He is risking his life, isn't he? One could say that Jonathan has emptied himself. He was willing to suffer the loss of all things, to count them as rubbish, as it says in Philippians 3.8. Matthew 6.33 was not a cliche for him. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, no matter what it costs you. That is who Jonathan is. And, and because of this love and faithfulness that he has vertically with God, it's because, that's why Jonathan can rely on him. That's why the relationship horizontally can be so strong, can be such a source of comfort. He would remain faithful to the covenant even if it cost him the goodwill of his father, even if it cost him his, his standing, even if it cost him his life. And at this point, his anger is righteous anger. His anger is God-fearing anger. His anger is holy anger. He would, he would have understood Jesus' words in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. The faithful Christian life does not consist in securing our own kingdoms, but in imitating Yahweh's faithfulness and covenant love, whatever it costs us. Right? When he says, be holy as I am holy, love as I have loved, this is what he's talking about. Right? We confuse our calling sometimes with Christmas cards. Sentimentality. This is what we're called to do. Show this kind of steadfast love to God and his word and his people, that we are willing to risk anything and everything 
to uphold the covenants that we have made, to uphold the promises that we have made with one another. Life does not consist in achieving our own goals, our own ambitions, but in fulfilling our responsibilities and obligations to God and to one another, loving God and loving our neighbor. Life must consist in faithfulness and obedience to the standard which is Christ-like selflessness, yesed, loving kindness, grace. This is the high and holy calling that lays on all of us, all of our households. Now, they go out and they do the arrow shooting thing. <laughs> he goes out in the field, he shoots the arrows. The servant has no idea what's going on. But they get the picture. They understand one another. And now I'm going to just skip down to the parting scene because they don't see each other again. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed there three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. What does it mean to love your neighbor? Behold, Jonathan and David in the field parting ways. Go in peace, he says. Remember the love that we have for one another. Remember the love that we have for one another's households. Now, a two-day feast meant that David's farewell to Jonathan took place on the third day, which is repeated throughout this passage. They want us to know it's the third day. Verses 5, 12, and 19 say it. It's the third day. It's the third day. And, and what happens on the third day? Resurrection comes. There is new life in David now. He has been vindicated because Jonathan went before his father, and we find out that it's not David that needs to be put to death. It's, it's Saul that's erring. It's Saul that's gone astray. It's Saul whose house is collapsing around him. And here we have two sons of Saul, a son and a son-in-law, who are twins in their devotion to Yahweh and their courage are now separated. A high cost for their love of one another. Even in this last major scene, the character of Jonathan glows warmly. He will return to his father's doomed house. What does he gain there? Oh, but that's his father. That's his house. He will go there. Right? He knows that the judgment that's coming on Saul's household, he's a part of it. And he doesn't turn his face away. And there's a book that I uh, recently bought my sons, and I'm reading myself. It's called The Last Stand, Why Men Fight When There's No Hope. And it's a, it's a long history of all, all the battles men fought where there was no way they were going to win. And it's not like a Hollywood movie. They didn't. And how much does, does Jonathan love the Lord God, to return to the house of the Saul, which will not stand. David's gratitude and mutual affection and grief mark the whole parting scene. Jonathan has the last word. He says, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between you and I, between our offspring forever. Their covenant bond has established peace between them. It is as if Jonathan urges, go in peace, because there is peace in this you're now in the wilderness. You're now astray. The king is now hunting you like a dog. But I want you to know, go in peace, because you have an anchor, and that anchor is me. There is the love of the Lord reflected in this world towards you, and it's coming from me. Go in peace. 
Remember this moment. Remember this place. Remember this relationship. Remember the Lord that stands between us. Remember our households that will stand together forever. There are things bigger and and better and beyond our circumstances. Isn't this what biblical peace is all about? Right? Think about it. There's an, there, where's the peace in Dave's life? <laughs> We're going to see. He's going to be hunted here, there, and everywhere now. The peace that he has is this love between two people who are covenanted together. Biblical peace is not a tranquility, but rather a rightness at the center of our lives in the midst of a lot of turmoil. Paul tells us that Christians enjoy peace with God in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. And then at the same time, we endure afflictions in the world, according to 5.3. When he says that, this is what he means. Yes, there is a storm. Yes, there are enemies on every side. But in the center of, that, of those enemies is a table in which he will feast with me. Jesus told his disciples in John 14.27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither, n- neither let them be afraid. He, he was leaving, and he, he said, you're going to be persecuted, but my peace I leave with you. The Christian does not have peace because things are peaceful all around him. <laughs> Jesus didn't say, well, you know, I've taken care of everything. There's absolutely nothing to worry about. Go have fun. We have peace because a greater one than Jonathan has pledged his friendship to us, as he has said to us. If you doubt that, then you have not been listening to the, Lord's, uh, the, the proclamation of the Lord's table week in and week out, where the Lord says, this cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood. We have the said of God in Christ, a covenant love, the love of an unforsaking friend that speaks peace in our disappointments, our dangers, and our disasters. If Jonathan could be this loyal, if David could be this loyal, how much greater is the loyalty of the Lord Jesus? Who calls you friend? The covenant that he has sealed in his own blood. We have a feast set amidst our enemies. We have a greater Jonathan showing us his loving kindness and telling us peace. We have a high priest. We have a king who came in the image and likeness of men to take our place on the cross to, to fulfill the covenant he made with Abram. As it says in Galatians 3.14, So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Christ came and fulfilled the covenant with Abraham and says to everyone who comes to him, tell death, do us part. And then he put put death to death. He promised you, tell death, do us part. And then he killed death. That's the relationship that ought to be at the center, not only of our, our, our own hearts and minds, but at the center of every other relationship that we have. This is what we stand on. This is our hope. This is our joy. This is our strength. He said, till death do us part, and then put death to death. This is who you are. You are his friend. What can overcome you? What can overcome you? Now, are you in the middle of a storm? Yes. <laughs> is there an anchor in the midst of that storm? Yes. Are you surrounded by enemies on every side? Yes. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. At the center of it, at the center of those enemies is a table. And on that table is the Lord Jesus. And he says, come, let us make a covenant again together. Let us renew it. Let let us again take these vows. And he says to us, till death do us part. And then he holds up the proof that he has killed death. And you will experience his yesed with him today, forever, and amen.
Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that he did not remain in heaven, but he came and fulfilled the covenant you made with Abram. So that we Gentiles, Lord, would know you, that we would come into your presence, that we would be united with you, that we would receive your spirit, that we would be your people, that you would call us friends, that you would say between us peace. We know, Lord God, that you are with us, and I pray as we go from here that the said of God would be in our hearts and in our minds, that it would be, Lord God, the source of strength and the source of friendship, the source of unity, the source of love between not only you and us, but one another. We thank you and we praise you for the faithfulness that you have always shown us. In Jesus' name, amen.